Hello and welcome everyone to the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron White, fresh back on the ground in Seattle, Washington after my trip to the Toronto International Film Festival. You are here for reviews that are simple, short, and spoiler-free, so that's what you're going to get. In this series, I will be speaking about the films that I saw at TIFF 2023. Some of these do not have release dates yet. Others do. I'll let you know when I can what those are. But thank you for coming along for this journey. I hope that I can introduce you to some interesting and exciting new films to keep your eye out for. So without further ado, let's get into the reviews. Well, I'm back at it again, and the first review for this episode is for a film called The Holdovers from Focus Features. It stars Paul Giamatti, Divine Joy Randolph, Dominique Sessa, and Carrie Preston. It is directed by Alexander Payne and written by David Hemmingson. Cinematography is by Igel Brild. It is edited by Kevin Tent, and music is by Mark Orton. It runs 133 minutes and is rated R for language, some drug use, and brief sexual material. What's it about? A curmudgeonly instructor at a New England prep school is forced to remain on campus during Christmas break to babysit the handful of students with nowhere to go. Eventually, he forms an unlikely bond with one of them, a damaged, brainy troublemaker, and with the school's head cook, who has just lost a son in Vietnam. Now, Alexander Payne films have been very hit and miss for me. Sometimes I absolutely have loved them. Other times I've found them to be completely forgettable and really not entertaining to me at all. And so my choice to see The Holdovers at TIFF was based primarily on positive reactions coming out of Telluride. I went into this film with no expectations or hype whatsoever, and I came out of it with it not only being my favorite film of the festival, but also one of my absolute favorite films of the year. Now, there have been no shortage of films set in prep schools or colleges about teacher-student relationships. But Alexander Payne manages to take something that is a very familiar formula and create something thoughtful, incredibly heartwarming, charming, and very, very funny. The story primarily revolves around Mr. Hunnam, played by Paul Giamatti, who is this teacher that gets stuck with the babysitting duty of staying with the students over Christmas break. The kids don't like him already. He has a very traditional education style in which he is hard on them and he doesn't let up. He's a bit of a dick, to be honest. And one of Mr. Hunnam's brighter students, Angus Tully, is also left behind, certainly not excited to be there, really wanted to get away for the holidays, but instead his mother and her new husband are taking off on their honeymoon. So he's extremely bitter, and Mr. Hunnam is extremely annoyed, and the two of them just tend to clash right away in this battle of wills. Both give absolutely fantastic performances. Their chemistry together 
is wonderful. The two have many fantastic, hilarious interactions together due to the fantastic performances that they give and also just a very witty and snappy script. And they ultimately find connection and encouragement in one another and help each other through their loneliness in ways that neither of them could have imagined was possible. Along for the ride at various times is Divine Joy Randolph's character, Mrs. Lamb, who is the prep school's cook. She also gives an absolutely delightful performance as this mother who is dealing with the grief of having lost her son in Vietnam. And now she's stuck here cooking for these two bozos who don't have a lot of respect or gratefulness in them. And the way that these three characters unite, who you'd never believe have something in common, they find that. And it results in just such an accessible and moving picture. It's one that understands that pretty much all of us have buried pain somewhere in our lives, and that we could all benefit from being a little more empathetic with one another. From the opening logos that are very old school all the way to the ending credits, the film is lovingly and perfectly made. It has a softness to the cinematography and the tone that you just don't see very often and is very fitting of its wintry Christmas time New England setting. And both the score and the soundtrack are absolutely lovely and suited well to this particular type of dramedy. Rarely can I say that I wouldn't change a single scene or even a beat in a movie, but that is the case with Alexander Payne's The Holdovers. I truly have no notes and this is one of the most enjoyable experiences I've had with a set of characters in a cinema this entire year. This feels like a 2023 version of something like Dead Poets Society. It's the closest we've come to recapturing the magic of a story like that. And my hope is that this does incredibly well in awards season. Paul Giamatti is worthy of all the praise. And I hope that audiences don't forget the power and the value of simple storytelling that can be so emotionally affecting. You don't have to have wild and crazy things happen to be meaningful and to help people reflect on their own lives in a positive way. The Holdovers will be in theaters on October the 27th and I already can't wait to see it again, and I hope that you will be able to check it out then as well. Next is The Boy and the Heron, distributed in the U.S. by G-Kids. It stars the voices of Soma Santoki, Masaki Suda, Ko Shibasaki, Aimeon, Yoshino Kimura, Takuya Kimura, Haru Kobayashi, and Shinobu Otake. It is written and directed by Hayao Miyazaki. Cinematography is by Atsushi Okui. It is edited by Takeshi Sayama. And music is by the incomparable Joe Hisaishi. It runs 124 minutes. What is it about? A boy discovers an abandoned tower in his new town and enters a fantastical world with a talking gray heron. Now, this is Hayao Miyazaki's first feature film in 10 years. So, of course, the buzz surrounding this has been enormous. And going into it, we all assumed it was going to be his new final, final film. 
He previously retired after making The Wind Rises, which felt at the time like a perfect way for him to go out. His most historical and least fantastical movie of all. But here he is back in the studio right before I saw this movie. Announcements came out that he was back at work yet again, and this probably wasn't going to be his last film after all. Now, despite the film's original title of How Do You Live, which references a Japanese novel, this is an original fantasy story and really has nothing to do with that previous work at all. The story encircles a boy named Mahito, who at the beginning of the tale, we see lose his mother in a fire during World War II. She's working in a hospital as a nurse, his father is a soldier, and he is unable to get to her before it's too late. They then move out of Tokyo and into the country a bit later to be with his father's new wife, who also awkwardly happens to be his previous wife's younger sister. This was a weird aspect of the movie that they never really lean into. They don't highlight the obvious strangeness of this situation nearly enough for my liking. I found it a little weird that they would just kind of glance over how unlikely and maybe unnatural that is for someone to marry someone's sister after their wife has died. But regardless, the characters are all really sweet and enjoyable, and it's not a problem for the narrative. While at his new home, Mahito ventures out into the gardens and the woods surrounding his new house that is also occupied by a set of old grannies for some reason. I don't know exactly what they're doing there in the first place, other than they will have a reason to show up later once the story becomes more fantastical. But he discovers this old kind of crumbled, blocked off tower and a talking gray heron who begins beckoning him to come with the gray heron into a fantastical world where he can find his mother. The heron tells him that his mother is still alive and the Mojito is needed to save her. What follows is a journey for Mojito through a magical and weirdly creative, one-of-a-kind world that only Miyazaki could dream up. The best comparison for something like this is probably Spirited Away as far as world-building goes, but I don't think it's anywhere quite on that level, both with its creativity or even with its emotional resonance. But it does include some really fun stuff like fire mages and knife-wielding, human-eating giant parakeets and a whole detailed system of how souls are born that honestly reminded me a lot of Pixar's film Soul. And then the heron transforms when it's in this magical world. It's quite creepy, almost like horror-ish in a way, but a little bit silly too. And it never fully becomes scary because in his more humanoid form, the heron becomes a little bit of a bumbling idiot and a true comedic sidekick. Now, I did not find this to be anywhere close to the most engrossing or emotionally gripping story the director has told, but it does have a very strong cast of both serious and quirky characters that fit well and interact well together. There's stunning animation, as always, but design-wise, these images have not stuck with me in the way that previous Miyazaki films 
have. That being said, I do think that it is one of Joe Hishaishi's best scores, and I have been desperately wanting to be able to re-listen to this as soon as possible and as often as possible. So I can't wait for it to release for me to be able to do that. Thematically speaking, The Boy and the Heron to me feels like the perfect swan or heron, maybe, song for Miyazaki. There's a part of this story that is distinctly personal and feels like he himself is in it as a character. It's about passing the torch and creating new worlds. And it feels like he is directly talking to his grandson and others who would take over the mantle from him at Studio Ghibli. And so I can't help but feel like it has a little bit of a lessened impact knowing that this is no longer his final film and that he's probably going to be making more work because it so perfectly encapsulates what it might be like for him right now if he was actually going to be moving on. Overall, this is an energetic and wonderful adventure, and it no doubt has a richness that is just begging to be revealed further by those who are able to rewatch and dig into this multiple times. I'm excited to see it again. I think that for a final, in quotes, Miyazaki film, there was a lot of expectations and hype around this. Kind of the opposite of what I just said about when I saw The Holdovers, how I went into that with no expectations and it allowed me to come to the film and, and sort of take it in much differently than what I brought with me into a Miyazaki film, having all of this baggage of, of an entire filmography that I find to be full of masterpieces, thinking this has to be on that level and then not having quite that experience. But I do believe that I will probably connect with it even more so on a rewatch. That being said, I still think that it's probably going to be mid-tier Miyazaki at best. Of course, mid-tier Miyazaki is better than what 90% of other directors were overall. So can't really go wrong there. G-Kids will be releasing this in theaters on December the 8th, and I think you can get your tickets now. Well, that's it for this episode of TIFF Reviews. Thank you for listening or watching. I appreciate you very much. Please like, subscribe, and share the podcast or the YouTube channel with anyone you think might also enjoy it. I will be back soon as usual with more reviews. Until then, keep watching and keep feeling filmed.